In the 31 years between 1914 and 1945, the world experienced two of the greatest wars in human history. By the time the guns fell silent in August 1945, these two conflicts had claimed well over 77 million lives. In addition, tens of millions had been wounded and maimed, many debilitated for life. Millions more were homeless, starving refugees. Great cities such as Warsaw, Kiev, Tokyo and Berlin, and scores of others had been reduced to rubble. In Germany alone, 70% of all housing had been destroyed. The apocalyptic team of war, famine, pestilence and disease seemed to have left the world reeling. Even during the course of the conflict, many leaders realized the need to try and initiate changes in the international structure so that such terrible slaughter and destruction did not occur again. Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin Roosevelt, as early as 1941, began to strategize on the development of an order in the world that would prevent catastrophes of this magnitude. Today, the order they established at the end of World War II, which resulted in the greatest period of global prosperity, now seems to be under threat and deteriorating. Organizations such as NATO, the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which led to the World Trade Organization, are now all under attack. The rise of nationalism and protectionism is in reality breaking down the structure of political and economic alliances and agreements that have been in place since the end of the Second World War. Are we witnessing the end of order and the development of a new and more unstable international reality? If so, where will it lead? There is a way to know. The great European empires that had controlled so much of the world proved unsustainable after World War II. Throughout Western Europe, a new spirit of pacifism developed, which was incompatible with imperial aspirations. The British Empire was the only one to convert itself into a global partnership of independent former colonies, today known as the Commonwealth. It is impossible to ignore the impact of the two great wars of the 20th century in shaping our world today. The once proud imperial powers of Germany and Japan appeared as if they would rest forever in the ashes of the war. In their near destitute state, they were at risk of being enveloped in the ambitions of Joseph Stalin's interpretation of the Communist Brotherhood, which was in fact an expansion of the new Soviet Empire. By the end of 1945, the British and Americans were very much aware of this intent. They realized that both Japan and Germany had highly educated populations, and that absorption within the sphere of the USSR was not desired by the Japanese or the West Germans. Thus, the United States moved forward with an unprecedented initiative called the Marshall Plan, which poured billions of dollars of targeted aid into the defeated nations to rebuild their economies. In 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization formed 
to provide a defensive shield for Western Europe. This was followed in 1953 by the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, which provided, along with heavy U.S. presence in Japan, protection in Asia. Under this protection, and with the help of the Marshall Plan, the populations of Germany and Japan rapidly rebuilt vibrant economies. This was immensely helped as they had no need to invest heavily in military development, given they were being protected by Western powers. At the same time, the Allies had a deliberate program of eliminating the fascist philosophies of the Nazis and the Japanese militarists. Under the oversight of the occupying powers, reforms were enacted that established democracies, which have since flourished in both countries, aiding in the development of a more pacifist spirit. The present order is largely predicated on two events. Number one, the Four Freedom Speech of President Roosevelt, given in January 1941. In this speech, he spoke of the need for nations to embrace freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Secondly, the Atlantic Charter, a document prepared in August 1941 by Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt. In this, they sketched out a new world order based upon principles of collective security, national self-determination, free trade among nations. These two seminal propositions were used to design the instruments by which peace and prosperity might be promoted on a global scale, and by which the security and dignity of mankind might be fostered and preserved. The institutions that resulted between 1944 and 1949 include the World Bank, to assist in rebuilding countries devastated by war and to provide loans and grants to improve health, agriculture, education and infrastructure. It was to help lift people out of poverty and despair and provide hope, therefore reducing the desire for war. The United Nations, a forum of nations which would theoretically have authority to safeguard the security of peoples and to address challenges to freedoms and economic development. The International Monetary Fund. It was to foster global financial stability, encourage trade, reduce poverty, and help nations that find themselves in a severe financial crisis. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, now known as the World Trade Organization. It was to promote trade by reducing or eliminating trade barriers and to act as an impartial referee when trade disputes arose settling disputes by peaceful arbitration instead of hostilities. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This became the internationally recognized statement that was to act as an assurance that Roosevelt's four freedoms would be respected and available to all peoples. This is the framework upon which the present-day world order is based. The institutions that have been mentioned are far from perfect, but as a result, the world, while it has seen many regional wars since 1945, has avoided global war. In addition, Europe and much of the world has, since 1945, enjoyed the most prosperous period in recorded history of mankind. Now, numerous forces are challenging this order. In the next portion of today's program, we will examine the nature of these challenges and how mankind will face a very uncertain and risky future. In the third part of our program, 
we will look at what will happen when the present world order collapses. First, I would like to give you an opportunity to call and order your copy of our free DVD, The Rise and Fall of Britain and America. Roosevelt and Churchill were in a unique position to initiate organizations which have helped to maintain a certain level of stability in the world for the last 70 years. This DVD discusses how these nations rose to such prominence and explains the decline they are faced with today. Let me tell you how you can get your copy of this free DVD, The Rise and Fall of Britain and America. Just dial the number on your screen, or you can also order online at TWCanada.org. This DVD contains three telecasts, revealing the forgotten history of how the British Empire came into prominence, the cause of its decline, and the future of not only the English-speaking peoples, but of the whole world. Don't wait. Call now or visit us online to get your free copy. If you missed our contact information, don't worry, I'll be back to give it again later. Welcome back to our program, where we are examining the question, is the present world order collapsing? We've described how the impact of the horror of two world wars led many leaders to see the need for new structures and philosophies that would enhance the chance of peace. We saw that Roosevelt and Churchill laid the basis for the organizations that we see now in place to resolve conflicts and to help create better conditions in nations, hopefully reducing the will to use war as a solution through the implementation of freedom from fear and want and freedom of expression and religion. Another goal was the improvement of economic situations in nations. As a people's hope in a better life in their homeland suppresses the drums of war. Hence, institutions were put in place to arbitrate between nations on economic matters and to promote free or freer trade. One of the principles of the Atlantic Charter was the reduction of trade barriers. The economics of this was best articulated by economist Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. Overall, Smith supported free trade, arguing countries should specialize in their areas of expertise. He made the argument that there's no point in protecting an industry if production costs 30 times the price of importing the same product from another country. He argued that if our competitors became wealthier, they will be able to buy more of our exports. Smith saw trade as a way for all countries to thrive. As a rich man is likely to be a better customer to the industrious people in his neighborhood than a poor, so is likewise a rich nation. Trade restrictions by aiming at the impoverishment of all our neighbors tend to render that very commerce insignificant and contemptible. When nations agree to tariffs, they agree to keep them within a range that has been negotiated. Tariffs must not be raised arbitrarily, adding predictability and economic confidence which is so important to long-term prosperity. Today, many nations are arbitrarily imposing tariffs in violation of WTO rules. Matt Gold, former U.S. Deputy Assistant Trade Representative for North America, recently told CNBC, If approved, the tariffs are complete violations of international trade agreements and would affect the entire global economy. 
the tariffs have severe implications for undermining the credibility of the entire global training system. If the WTO collapsed, which it would if we pulled out, it wouldn't be just the U.S. losing exports. The entire global economy would fracture. The result of this action in ignoring previous agreements is potentially undermining the economic order that has witnessed the most prosperous time in history. It is a threat to our collective freedom from want. Another of Roosevelt's four freedoms that is under direct attack is our freedom of speech. As far back as the 1990s, a new term began to enter the English vocabulary, political correctness. Basically, this is most often defined as the avoidance of forms of expression or action that are perceived to exclude, marginalize, or insult groups of people who are socially disadvantaged or discriminated against. Right off the top, it does not prevent one from insulting or demeaning someone who is not perceived to be socially disadvantaged, marginalized, or discriminated against. Thus, political correctness has become a tool used by the new left or those who want to silence views with which they disagree, however politely expressed. The problem is best witnessed in many North American university campuses. Invited speakers who hold a more socially conservative position are shouted down or protested to the point they cannot present their ideas. Too often this suppression of free expression has been supported by university administrations, the media, and vocal social activists. There are numerous examples of this. Lawyer John Carpe, who is the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, stated the following in a presentation to a task force on freedom of expression in February 2018. Freedom of expression is the foundation of liberal democracy. The same holds true for universities, where freedom of inquiry, freedom of thought, and the freedom to criticize represent the cornerstone upon which Western institutions of higher education have been built. Freedom in thought and speech, and disagreement in ideas and beliefs on every conceivable subject are of the essence of our life. Further, it is difficult to imagine a more important guarantee of freedom to a democratic society than that of freedom of expression. The right to express a polite but dissenting opinion is one that distinguishes free people from those not so fortunate. But if polite speakers are denied a forum because they may have what the liberals deem a wrong view on matters of gender, abortion, climate change, or a host of other sensitive topics, just because they fear ideas that challenge theirs, then one of our fundamental freedoms is truly being suppressed, and another vital piece of the world order is missing. Where will this lead? In the final part of our program, we will engage this question. At this time, I would like to remind you of today's free offer, our DVD, The Rise and Fall of Britain and America. This DVD examines and explains the trends we are seeing in the English-speaking world today and where it is headed in the future. Call now. This DVD is yours for the asking. Just call the number on the screen and request The Rise and Fall of Britain and America. You can also order online at TWCanada.org. Have you ever asked where is the world headed? Or what does the future hold for me? We answer these questions and more in our magazine, Tomorrow's World.
it is also yours free of charge. So call us right now. We have operators ready to take your call or you can order online. I hope you enjoy the rest of today's program. We began today's program by exploring how the current world order was developed after the end of World War II, designed to reduce the likelihood of global conflict through enhancing conditions that would assure basic freedoms and economic hope. We have also looked at how the present world order that resulted in a more peaceful and prosperous world is being slowly cast aside by the gradual loss of two basic freedoms, the freedom of expression and freedom from want. One additional freedom that President Roosevelt identified, freedom of religion, is also under attack. Even a casual student of history understands that it was the struggle for freedom of religion that brought with it freedom of speech as we know it today. Thus, freedom of religious expression and practice is foundational to a free society in a world under man's government. Yet of all the targets of the liberal left, none is more in their crosshairs than freedom of religious expression and practice, especially that of biblical Christianity. There are numerous examples, but perhaps none more telling than that which is happening in schools. One of the guarantees of freedom put in place in 1948 was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Keep in mind that this was written at the end of World War II. One of the evils that occurred in Germany and Japan as well as in the Soviet Union was their government's assertive control over education resulting in schools being used to indoctrinate children to hold views that often violated the parents' beliefs and contradicted their religious values and teachings. Thus, children were separated from their parents using education as an instrument of propaganda. Article 26, Clause 3 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states, Parents have a prior right to choose the kind of education that shall be given to their children. This was deliberately written to prevent governments from propagandizing youth in ways opposed to parental beliefs. The Declaration is a constitutional element in the nations which have signed on since 1948. Yet the governments of some nations, such as the United States, Canada, and nations of Western Europe, are overtly violating this agreement in schools. Take, for example, the Canadian province of Alberta, which recently passed laws that actually prohibit schools from notifying parents of their child's participation in school activities that promote sexual and gender perspectives contrary to the parents' cultural or religious beliefs. In some cases, such draconian provisions contradict existing legislation. Thus, the parent, the primary caregiver for the child's physical and emotional growth, is denied access to critical information about their own children. Alberta goes even further, forcing private and or religious schools to teach matters of a sexual nature that violate the tenets of culture, conscience, or faith of the individual or the sponsoring religious denomination. In at least one case, a Christian religious school has been required to avoid the use of numerous biblical passages that local officials deemed offensive. This appears to constitute a classic violation of freedom of religious expression and association. 
The government legislation in question directly interferes with the family unit, disregarding Section 6-3 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states, the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state. California, Ontario, and other jurisdictions across North America have recently made similar attempts at interference in family prerogatives. These represent an infringement on some of the basic freedoms Roosevelt articulated in 1941, freedoms upon which the social and economic stability of the West was based. They are now crumbling before our eyes. The problems man has experienced throughout history are the natural consequence of not keeping all of God's instructions. But today, by totally rejecting the moral laws of the God of the Bible, Western society has basically declared war on Him. The Bible, whether we like it or not, includes predictions or prophecies about that which must soon occur. The society that has developed in this atmosphere of rebellion was clearly articulated by the Apostle Paul. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Those who do remain faithful to the God of Abraham will themselves be hated, not for bad deeds, but rather for holding firm to the truth and the way of life outlined in the Bible. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. God has provided a warning in the Bible that he inspired and has preserved. It is a warning to modern nations that if heeded, will avert a coming catastrophe. If it is not heeded, Mankind's actions will soon cause him to descend to the lowest depths in his history, a time of unimaginable horror caused by a human revolt against godly instruction. God gives this warning and the news of a new world order that will yet be established when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, returns to this earth in many scriptures. Because some will heed, earth will not be destroyed. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The current intolerant illiberal initiatives that are destroying the order developed through Churchill and Roosevelt's vision, however imperfect, will be replaced. Christ will restore truth and God's holy law on this earth and restore the world and mankind to the wonderful state he originally intended that they should have by making some right choices, one of which is a decision to submit to God's way of life as described in the Bible, one can become part of that new order when all things will be restored to a state of total productive peace and happiness forever. 
The Bible reveals why Churchill and Roosevelt were in the position to establish organizations which have shaped the world. If you have not already done so, call and request your free DVD, The Rise and Fall of Britain and America. Thank you for showing interest in the reality of what's going on around us. Please stay tuned for Tomorrow's World Answers and be sure to write, call, or email for today's special offer. Join us next week as Gerald Weston, Michael Haycoop, and I bring you more information about today's issues and the glorious hope of tomorrow's world. To learn more about today's topic, visit www.twcanada.org. You can also order by calling us at 1-866-784-7895 or by writing to us at Tomorrow's World, PO Box 409, Mississauga, Ontario, L5M 0P6. You will also receive a free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine, revealing God's principles for living an abundant and happy life while providing insight into current and future events. Welcome to Tomorrow's World Answers, where we answer your questions straight from the Bible. Many try to do away with the very clear teachings of the Bible, describing them as part of a law which has been replaced. Today we'll look at a passage some try to use to indicate that faith is something separate from God's law. Let's examine the question, does the faith of Abraham require the law? If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the third chapter of Galatians, a book many believe to put an end to the law of God. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the work of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Does this mean that all we need to do is believe God? James, another apostle, certainly had a different opinion when he wrote his famous epistle. James 2 and verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. If belief is all that is required, then demons are to be commended. True belief in God means understanding that the laws He has given to us are right and just, that they are created for our benefit. Paul tells us we should have the same type of faith that Abraham did. In verses 7 and 8, he quotes from Genesis that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham, and that all nations would be blessed through him. Let's read the original statement in Genesis to see the type of faith that Abraham had, the same type of faith that Paul is extolling the virtues of. Genesis 26 and verse 4. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. We don't show faith by throwing away the laws of our Creator. Paul is commending readers of Galatians to show their faith in God the same way Abraham did, by keeping God's commandments, His holy law. To submit a question for the show, 
email us at twanswers at tomorrowsworld.org. Be sure to watch us online at twcanada.org or by searching Tomorrow's World Answers on YouTube. At our website, you can also watch this and many more Tomorrow's World programs. Call 1-866-784-7895. Write or visit us online today. This program is a production of The Living Church of God.